Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we're talking about Bitcoin hardware wallets versus air-gapped computers with my guest, NVK, the CEO and founder of CoinKite. So in this episode, we get into the concepts around locking down security and what attacks are possible against air-gapped computers or also hardware wallets. And we also get into multi-signature vulnerabilities and standards, as well as helping new coiners in the space and helping them balance trade-offs. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com. Bitcoin has emerged as a major player on the global stage. It's been significantly de-risked. You've seen all these recent investments and announcements. At this point, everyone should own at least a little. A common way people get started is establishing their initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. With Swan, you create a recurring purchase plan like $100 a week or $20 a day and you can also make one-time buys. So you can use bank wires for large amounts or ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys. Swan are available in all states and territories of the US, including New York. So they are a great place to send your friends and family when they are ready to start buying Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com slash Levera, and they will get $10 of Bitcoin dropped in their account when they sign up. Coinkite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Cold Card. This is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. I think it has some incredible features, such as the ability to use it air-gapped. You never have to directly plug it to the computer. You can use a micro SD card. You can also use dice to add entropy, or you can bring your own entropy. It's got a whole range of features. It's really a leading wallet in the market. They offer PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, and it can work great as part of a multi-signature quorum also. There's all sorts of features. Go and check them out. Get yours at coinkite.com and use the code Levera for a discount. Compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. The anti-cloud mining option, Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. For years, we've all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now, with Compass, everyone is able to tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. If you're unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles which eliminates the need for advanced technical knowledge and allows you to quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Visit them at minewithcompass.com and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. NVK, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Mate, things are getting really crazy now and uh, it's obviously there are a lot of new people coming into the space and they're all asking a lot of these questions around how to secure their Bitcoins. Uh, Now, a really interesting topic that has seemed to come up over the years is this question of air-gapped computers versus hardware wallets. So maybe high level, can you just tell us how are you thinking about that question? Yeah, so... Surprisingly enough, there's been a lot of discussions even sort of like this last couple of weeks about this stuff. Every time the price goes up, right, everybody revisits their security and they should. Um, <clears throat> so like air gapping uh, uh, computers in general is one of the best practices of keeping things secure, right? Like this is this is not a new uh, thing just because of Bitcoin. It's just Bitcoin leverages this technique, right, of... Uh, what it means is that you don't have the device connected to the network, right? So it's like, think of it as a moat of air around it. There is no cables, right, aside from power. Uh, and 
what that means is that um, it makes a lot harder for an attacker to have a synchronous uh, means of retrieval of an attack, right? Because imagine that like there is no perfect device, there is no device that's like doesn't have any bugs, that doesn't have vulnerabilities, that doesn't have weak spots. Everything is hackable, right? Things just have sort of degrees in which they defend against which attacks, right? Now, what happens is, say you have an unknown bug on a device, right? If the device is not connected to the internet, even if the attacker knows that vulnerability exists, he's not able to get in there remotely and retrieve whatever information he's seeking, right? That's sort of like the goal of air gapping. So we could think of it, and I think one analogy I've heard is, imagine you've got two houses. One house has 10 doors and 20 windows, and the other house has only one door, and that's the only way in and out. That's exactly. perhaps a good analogy to what we're trying to achieve here. And so the question then is, there are some people in the community who believe that you know you should not use a hardware wallet because you can air gap a computer. Um, and then there, uh, I think probably the mainstream view is probably more like, look, a hardware wallet is a specially designed Bitcoin computer. It is specially locked down. I guess that's probably one high level way to summarize what's going on. Um, but uh, maybe you, if like if someone was to try to air gap a computer, what is actually involved in that process? And, you know, what are some of the pitfalls in trying to achieve that? So, so the idea is, um, so, so let's just talk first about like, general purpose computer versus hardware wallet, right? So what are they offering? So a general purpose computer is gonna, uh, is gonna protect you against say a uh, specific purpose device vendor vulnerability, right? So nobody knows what you're buying the laptop for, right? If you go to say Apple or Walmart, whatever, and you buy the laptop for cash, right? Nobody even knows you have the laptop. So, uh, nobody is going to be targeting you directly for Bitcoin. So that's one thing, right? Now, um, with hardware wallets, well, those are Bitcoin hardware wallets, right? So uh, the attacker knows what it's going for, right? So it, that that may be a rogue person at a vendor side. That may be a carrier uh, uh, shipping the device. Um, so... What happened in that sense is like, then, okay, great. So these are sort of like the the more, and I'm being very simplistic, right? Um, so so those are the two sort of like uh, uh, advantages and disadvantages of this general purpose versus single purpose devices, right? So then you have to look, right? Uh, what steps does the vendor of the hardware wallet takes against those attack scenarios, right? Uh, and uh, well, that wouldn't count on the air gapping uh, laptop or the laptop itself, because you know nobody knows you have that. But uh, uh, with hardware wallets, say like cold card, I can just talk about my case. Uh, you know, we have the temper evident bags, we have the firmware that you can reload, uh, we have the 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 anti phishing words. So like we have like a slew of protections, none of which is perfect, but combined they they offer a great level of, of satisfactory security, right? So that you're protected against sort of like vendor uh, specific attacks or supply chain attacks, right? Now with the laptop, on the other hand, well, anytime you buy a laptop of Walmart, it's gonna come with like a ton of garbage, right? Like all kinds of essentially like you could almost say it's malware by the vendor, right? 
uh, you know, right? Like when you buy a laptop, you have to uninstall a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah, and and, and like you know, uh, an average person is only going to be able to one remove so much of that, right? And two, even if you wipe it clean and you install something from scratch, an average person is not going to understand really how far you have to go to lock it down, right? While I understand why some very advanced people uh, totally want to go that route because they are completely avoiding the trust in hardware wallets, and they also are very capable of locking down a laptop. But even in their case, honestly, um, a laptop has a football field size of attack surface, right? Because it's a general purpose device, right? There is a microphone DSP chip in there, right? Are you drilling that out, right? And and every single, even when you talk about open source, like uh, Linux on top of a laptop, um, all the chips in the laptop, like not all, but like most of it will be closed source, right? There is even the, the, the boot ROM, right? Like everything in there is essentially an attack vector, right? While a hardware wallet uh, not being perfect, it is a very simplistic device, right? Like single purpose, oftentimes, at least in our case, there's just two chips in there. The rest is just sort of like electric. Um, and um, what it does is it just gives you a lot less stuff to have to worry about being attacked. And, and, and it's a honeypot as well, right? So there's a lot of security research gone into trying to break them. I mean, that's, that's like all that like is done to them all the time, right? Like it's just people trying to get in and then show that they can get in into one of those, right? Um, so, so that's sort of like a, a, a big difference between the two. Right. And so just hypothetically, let's say somebody wanted to do air gapping a computer. What would that process look like? I guess off the top of my head, it would be things like, okay, um, trying to strip out the Wi-Fi, strip out the microphone, strip out the Bluetooth, um, like physically trying to take time to physically remove those things from the laptop device. And then you might need to use some kind of live boot system, for example, Tails OS, or maybe you, you know, you're flashing something else on there to actually do your Bitcoin things on there. Can you just outline a little bit, what would that process look like? So in my opinion, um, if you're going to do a, uh, a laptop for Bitcoin, you want to try to, re like, I, I wouldn't even use most distros of Linux anyways, uh, especially not Ubuntu, because it was meant for people to do like spreadsheeting and Word on a Linux version. Right, you would probably pick a security-minded uh, distribution that has less cruft for you to clean out and less things for you to to lock. Uh, and personally, I would go for FreeBSD. Right, it's a it's a very secure uh, uh, platform, uh, and uh, it starts essentially with nothing in it, and you add only the stuff that you need. Right, as opposed to starting with a lot of stuff like Ubuntu, that then you take stuff out. Right, it's sort of like it's a lot easier to make something safe when you don't have to take stuff out, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, you you try to sanitize a lot of the hardware by taking stuff out. Uh, in most modern laptops, that became very difficult because a lot of things are single chip, um, and uh, and you know, like, and these are very sort of delicate electronics, so it's not that simple. Uh, I, I think it's it's a uh, it's very unrealistic for the average person to do this at a satisfactory level right uh, and then there is the concern about for example 
Um, and, and this is why I feel like FreeBSD versus, you know, whatever distro you're going to use of Linux uh, is that like, you're going to have to choose like uh, exactly the library and build from source and check each library for um, say the disk encryption, right? Like, are you going to just trust the disk encryption that comes with the distro, right? Um, these things are not simple. Like imagine the millions and millions and millions of like little libraries and packages and things that they're like, you know, people in the Bitcoin community will say like, yeah, you know, build your hardware wallets firmware from source, right? Well, you know, that's a pretty tiny little piece of software comparing to a massive OS, right? So it is just a lot less stuff to go over. And so I think the other point is using it in practice. So again, it depends what the person is using for. Obviously, we're speaking mostly in the cold storage case. However, if that person actually needs to periodically spend out of that storage let's say they're doing a big it's a big life event they need to spend some coins well now they've actually got to facilitate that process of you know getting a transaction in and out of that air gapped computer and you know the problem then is how do you do that in a in a user friendly way because well theoretically this is an air gapped computer you don't want it connected to the internet so now how do you get something in and out of there well maybe you do a usb but then what software do you use? So it's kind of, I mean, maybe you'd use Electrum and that's an example, but what I'm just trying to spell out here is there's some practical difficulties involved with using these, uh, I guess, laptops as a, or air-gapped laptops as a hardware wallet. Now, I guess historically, um, and I've, I've used some kind of setup similar to this when I was doing an Armory wallet, this is you know years and years ago, um, but do you have any thoughts around the practical components of using a, an air-gapped laptop? Yeah, so I, I think just recently Bitcoin Core added some support for for air gapping uh, the node so that you can transfer data uh, on and off, right? Because you also have to keep uh, uh, blocks up to date, right? And normally you keep that computer connected to the internet, right? Um, so so it's kind of complicated that way. Uh, I, I find it personally, I find it impractical. Uh, and then what happens when you remove some of this practicity, right? Is that like it adds more room for people to mess up, right? It means that like you you are gonna have to um, um, to do things that are a lot less natural and a lot less sort of like um, uh, uh, a single purpose, right? So with the harder wallet, the device was designed for that. It's simple, so you, you know what to do, right? Like you in cold cards case, you know you can do it air gap. So you're gonna do the the sneaker net with the micro SD to shuffle PSBTs in and shuffle transactions out, right? While with the laptop, you're gonna have to to choose, right? Like, are you gonna are you gonna do that with micro SDs? Are you gonna do that with USB? USB is a monumental cluster, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it's just it's just impractical, right? And, and I think that opens people to mistake and people. Uh, as I see this market grow and like for quite some years, um, uh, most people screw themselves out of their coins more than they uh, get robbed, right? And one thing that was very common back in the day when there were no harder wallets was for people to get robbed. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I think it's it's kind of interesting that way. So yeah, you make a lot of great points there, NVK. Uh, now, I think a really cool website, now this is your website, but listeners, go and check out airgapcomputer.com. And uh, NVK, do you want to tell us a little bit about this website and maybe tell us about some of the attacks possible? Yeah, so, you know, people love to talk about like air gap 
uh, computers, but I, I think a lot of the people don't understand like how much uh, um, you can do against the laptop. Uh, even side channel attacks too, right? Like where the laptop's not even connected. Mind you, a lot of these attacks will require like physical access to the device, right? Uh, but like you can do, for example, code boot attacks, right? Because the, the what happens is when you're running a laptop, the like all your your keys normally go into going to memory, right? So what happens is, let's say um, you turn off the laptop. Um, what you can do is you can freeze the RAM, right? Uh, with like actually very cold, and then you can actually read the RAM. So, <laughs> so you have access yeah. to some of that. There is, of course, there's a lot of software that tries to 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 do better against that, right? But but there's a lot of those little sort of like uh, accesses. So, for example, another one uh, they can read the RAM uh, with, with the the Wi-Fi card, so they were able to 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 see uh, via RF right radio frequency the 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 data being calculated inside the RAM so they were able to take data out uh another cool one was uh and this is actually quite it, it, it's simple but it's not it's simple in this context is uh, I love this one um so they you know there is this this very uh uh long distance um sensitive microphones that essentially it's a laser that they point at say your window because the glass uh, resonates right with sound um, and then they can actually listen to your keyboard and then as you type they can figure out which key you're typing to get your password for example <laughs> these are so scary man these are just crazy in terms of like what kinds of things are possible uh, and now side channel attacks are a comment like they're an attack that people a lot of researchers talk about them and in fairness that these there are side channel attacks versus hardware wallets too so oh, for maybe sure. if you could outline a little bit about the possibilities there in terms of side channel attacks versus hardware wallets versus air gap computers so uh a great attack for for side channel was against the trezor this was many years ago uh somebody uh managed to do a power differential power differential uh, attack on Trezor where they were able to read from the power uh, port uh, the device doing uh, cryptography on the MCU. There, there wasn't a lot of protection at that time on that, but they, you know that was fixed. Uh, another one is uh, there is this, this, uh, this, this thing called uh, chip shouter. Um, so essentially, um, you use a very, um, very specific uh, very targeted uh, RF uh, pushed, so like radio frequency pushed into a little area of the chip. And if you do it just right, um, you can actually, uh, on, a, on a Trezor, dump the whole memory of the chip. So you get the seed, essentially, right? Um, I guess code card, there was a good one. Uh, the guys from Ledger uh, essentially removed the, the our uh, secure element, our old secure element, out of a code card. Uh, and they no, they didn't remove it from cold cart, but they they used the same type of SE that we used, um, and they found a flaw on it that this SE is designed so that you cannot peel the top uh, to try to read the data inside. So they turn it upside down, and they dug the bottom of the SE. They pointed laser, very expensive machinery here. We're talking about quarter million dollar equipment, uh, pointed like a laser to a specific gate of the SE and send a very specific signal and were able to trick 
the the pin uh, counter of the SE. Um, so, you know, it's kind of theoretical in a way because it was not sort of demonstrated the actual device per se, and we keep the seed uh, encrypted in the other chip. Uh, but still, like, you know, it just it just shows, right, like that, like, given infinite resources, nothing is unhackable. Um, a good one on actual computers uh, that happens quite a bit now is uh, you have malware on the, say, the firmware of a hard drive. So you wipe your laptop, you do all this stuff, but there is the the firmware on the on the hard drive itself that you think is doing encryption or doing something else. Like there's there's malware in there, right? And you, it's not like the kind of firmware you even have access to update yourself, right? Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, that's why, like ultimately, one of the best defenses you have is to simply never plug a device to any other device. So on 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 the hardware wallet case, it's like you use the micro SD to shuffle the information. And on the laptop, that's air gap. You essentially never connect the laptop to anything. And of course, there are still trade-offs associated with that. But it's kind of like the idea is that's the most kind of reasonable balance usability-wise to still give you some level of security. Um, but yeah, certainly some of those side channel attacks that you're outlining there are quite scary in some ways. Like uh, the whole differential power analysis thing where... You know, people can try to assess based on the power levels what the device is doing. Because remember, when you're when you are using a hardware wallet, what you want it to do, obviously, it is storing the private keys. And then when you are when you go to actually sign a transaction, it's signing, it's doing some operation to sign a Bitcoin transaction so that you can then spend. So if they are able to monitor you in that vulnerable moment that is potentially where there's some leakage right exactly of information exactly and, and then like and then I, I like to like also sort of bring this all back down to sort of reality right there's a lot of these attacks either require uh, physical access or extremely targeted uh attacks against you right and you know you're not snowden jumping hotels, right, running from the NSA. So chances of a lot of these attacks are much lower. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, so I think that, like, you know, it's been, like, over a decade now of, like, Bitcoin and protecting Bitcoin. So I think that the space is still early, but it's, like, matured enough that people are not losing money, right? So I, the way I like to say it is kind of like you have, for example, we need to stop scaring noobs into self, like from self custody, right? I feel like uh, there is just too much fud uh, around uh, uh, the 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 solutions for security right now, uh, especially from extremely sophisticated people, right? Like I understand why, like a person who's like a core dev or something is extremely sophisticated, understand computers very well would say, hey, you know, of course, I can see all these attack vectors on a hardware wallet, right? Or or on a laptop. So this person understands how to remediate these things, right? Uh, but we can't expect an average person uh, to do any of this stuff realistically, right? So what do we need to do is sort of like, we need to teach them, not, not make them dumb, right? We don't want to send them to centralized wallets or to wallets where the validation is done by the vendor. But but we want solutions that are sort of a little bit more self-contained, right? So, you know, say you just sort of 
got some Bitcoin on Coinbase, right? Or no, let's say Kraken. Uh, you you know send those those few like a few hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars to your phone wallet, right? And but make sure you're using one that's like uh, non-custodial, right? So you have a backup of the seeding metal, right? So that's a nice way of you just getting your feet wet with self custody, right? And then sort of like whenever you're ready, uh, you know you you can sort of upgrade, right? And then like the next thing is like you know do the Bitcoin security dog guide thing where it's like okay, I'm ready. I'm going to like take some some self-custody to the next level because I have a little bit more money, right? So, you know, you get a hardware wallet, you get a metal plate, um, and, and you get that set up, right? Uh, and then you learn more, and then you add the passphrase, and then you learn more. Maybe you go multi-sig, right? But let people like follow a path that is like realistic and it's, and it's, uh, and it's incremental as opposed to like, no, you have a hundred dollars? No, you have to do five out of seven multi-sig with ten laptops that are air gap. It's it's, it's completely, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people go like, no, Coinbase is better, and I can't blame them. Yep. Yep. And now I guess one other point that maybe some uh, people out there might recommend is they might literally say, okay, fine, we can't. Even if you can't air gap the computer, what if you literally bought a computer only to run Bitcoin Core on it? And if you just like say you connected to the internet and you know you just ran Bitcoin Core and nothing else on this laptop, what's uh, what's wrong with that? Yeah, so I I, I really I, I think it's it's a great idea to have a computer that you use for Bitcoin things, including that's the computer that you use to talk to your hardware wallet, right? Um, it's nice to have a computer, you know, like the, the old adage goes, you know, don't shit where you eat. So like, don't mix in your everyday, you know, like, uh, 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 like uh, chatting apps or your day, everyday browsing with the computer where you do your Bitcoin accounting, where you do like, you know, your banking, for example, right? Because that computer have less chance of having viruses, right? Viruses are still a concern, even when you have a hardware wallet. Because the the desktop wallet could be pound by the virus uh, and then lie to your hardware wallet. But at the end of the day, the last line of defense is you, right? At least a hardware wallet, you can look on the screen, right? And verify the transaction is going where it needs to go, right? And then you approve it. So that's sort of like the last line of defense there. Also, there is some discussion and one of the concerns people share around hardware wallets is, oh, uh, the crypto library uh, is uh, maybe it's not using the Bitcoin's crypto library, cryptography library this is, and maybe there's not as many people reviewing the code on those hardware wallets as opposed to Bitcoin's cryptography and Bitcoin's libraries. How would you respond to that kind of concern? Um so, okay, so I think there's a few things first here. So uh, Libsac uh, 256K1, right, the, this, this new great library that's part of Core, uh, wasn't around or, or, uh, or mature enough when some of the main hardware wallets came to the market. Okay, so that's one thing. It just wasn't around. Um, and then I guess the other thing is, um, it, you know, uh, Mod Crypto, the one that we use, uh, you know, does have a lot of eyes on it. Um, it's 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 you know it's one of the most used libraries for hardware wallets. Um, I I can't I, I can't I don't know which one Ledger uses. Uh, but you know, but at least they get it audited. It, it, 
the closed sourceness of that project are a different set of trade-offs, right? Uh, but they 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 also have secure elements. So like you know each of these this sort of solutions will give you different sets of trade-offs. Now I do agree that this this library it, it, the the core library is much better. Uh, we are actually like transitioning to that about eighty percent done, um, and, and and it's a great improvement, especially in speed. But but I think um, I, I think it's a bit of fud, right? Because reality is there is like hundreds of millions of dollars in hardware wallets, and uh, attacking the crypto library has not been at least I have never seen a demonstration that that has been a concern, right? Um, it's the same with sort of BIP39. BIP39 is not as safe, let's put it this way, as uh, maybe other ways of making private keys, but it's just beyond good enough, right? Uh, and, and you know, and, and so much so that like it became the de facto standard, right? Sometimes, actually most of the time, standards are not the best solution. They're the solution that got the most buy-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate, but uh, that's, that's, the way, that's the way of the world, so... For better or worse, this is uh, probably what we're stuck with. Also, thoughts around how this market changes as it grows, right? So, for example, in the early days, you kind of had to know who to go to to get these hardware worlds, right? At, a, at an extreme, like, let's say this next year or so, we hit this crazy 10x or 100x in the number of people coming in. Does At what point does the market change and you know, other options become economically viable i mean just as a you know maybe a silly idea but does it ever get to the point where people buy hardware wallets from the supermarket or from like a department store that kind of thing yeah so i'm not a huge fan of resellers and third-party sellers because you do introduce one more hand in between uh so supply chain attacks are more reasonable right to happen so for example even buying hardware wallets on amazon i think is a terrible idea right because um Say uh, I'm a bad guy. I buy a thousand hardware wallets on uh, on Amazon. I I put very low grade sort of replace the firmware stuff that like you know it's uh, it steals money or even I just preload them with seeds right because a lot of the people buy on Amazon don't know better yeah. and then and then I return them all right uh, and then Amazon resells them again. So. So now you, you you just open a whole new sort of like low grade, but also low hanging fruit uh, attack on noobs, right? So I, I really, I, I think the future and sort of like the best way of handling security devices is to like go to the source to buy it. Uh, I think the verticalized sort of space is, is growing. So like manufactured to consumer, like you look at like Tesla, you look at Apple, right? Like you have all these companies that are skipping the middleman probably losing some sales in the process, but they have a tighter sort of like quality control, tighter security, right? On the, on the, on the process. Um, you know, then you, you know, for the more advanced people, you could also build your own hardware wallet kind of deal. Um, and then I think in the future, we might see also, you know, better chips or better, like actual hardware solutions that provide better sets of trade-offs that like uh, maybe make it, possible to have less concern about supply chain attacks or, or vendor attacks. Back to the show after a word for the sponsors. Lend at HODL HODL is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. This is a peer-to-peer -peer solution. There is a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal, so if you have 
if you have stable coins, you can put them up and get interest on those stable coins by creating an offer. On the other hand, if you hold Bitcoins and you need some liquidity or you want to lever up and get more Bitcoins, you can borrow stable coins and keep on hodling by paying interest. With HODL HODL's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Cyphersafe.io are producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel, and they've also got a Bitcoin recovery tag product, which specifically helps with recovery. This is an extra stainless steel tag with information like the original wallet, gap limits, derivation types, scripts used, and all the major hardware wallets have their own type of recovery tag specifying the data for that type. So you attach this to your seed word backup with a stainless steel cable included. There's even a website link so you can help your heirs or yourself recover the coins using Electrum. So it adds the value of helping you recover in practice. So the recovery tag works with any seed word backup device. You can go and buy yours at cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Unchained Capital are providing Bitcoin native financial services and they're using multi-sig technology. So if you need a way to improve your security, you can bring your hardware wallets over and use them as part of your multi-signature vault. They have a two of three multi-sig setup. And if you need help, you can actually purchase the concierge service. So you can get calls and have the hardware wallets shipped to you. They'll teach you and walk you through that process and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in the vault. So normally it's $1,500, but you'll get $50 off if you use the code Levera. Unchained offer all sorts of features such as business accounts if you are a business uh, and you can also find a whole range of educational content on their blog. So go and find them at unchained-capital.com. Now back to the show. Of course, you know, I'm sure yelling through all of this is my friend Michael Flaxman being like, guys, what about multi-sig? We've got to have multi-sig and I think maybe that become that space becomes easier as well. Although we wouldn't recommend that for beginners and say hey you've got to go to this level like it's one of those things where hopefully over time it just becomes easier and more practical um, but probably a good point now to talk about this recent uh, multi-sig vulnerability on the cold card so do you want to just give an overview on what happened there yeah so so multi-sig is, is sort of like fairly like complex and full of like edge cases right so um and then that's part of the reason why, like, as much as it's great to have multi-vendor, multi-sig, it's also not great to have multi-sig, multi-vendor as well, because, like, you're not testing against each other's sort of, like, bugs and things. Um, but uh, so in our case, this specific bug, uh, so most hardware wallets don't don't keep state, right? So they don't keep, uh, uh, like, information about the cosigner on a multi-sig, right? So they wouldn't even be defended against this. Uh, in our case, we do, uh, but uh, we had a bug that essentially was not checking it correctly. So, you know, uh, you have the sort of theoretical attack where like somebody would build a virus, would say pound uh, Electrum or, or, or uh, Spectre, and then they would build uh, a rogue transaction that would send the money to either a griffing address or uh like like a hosted address address or or even maybe like a, a a payout address right to the attacker and then uh 
if you had received this PSBT to sign in your code card, the code card would say it's okay. However, it would still ask you to check the transaction, right? For then for you to sign. So you were essentially the point of less defense there. You could have said, no, this is wrong, right? Um, so so that's sort of like what the problem was. We were not, we were trusting the XFP, so the the ID of some of the wallets that could be sort of trickery there. So essentially we just sort of we we've redone all the checks. <laughs> it's pretty yep. awesome now. Uh, and and I, I found it interesting because like as much as I, I love like the fact that it was found and it was fixed and stuff, uh like how most wallets don't even do this checking. So they wouldn't even have a possibility to have this bug because they just sort of YOLO, right? They just yep. essentially sign everything. Yeah, okay. Um, so let me just, I guess this is probably getting a little bit technical. Let me try and explain it in simpler terms just for anyone who's listening. So I guess we can think of it like your hardware wallet is kind of, it. in some ways it's dumb. It doesn't know what's going on out there in the world. And so that's why we have Bitcoin Core and some kind of coordinating application like Electrum or Spectre. And so in this example, Electrum or Spectre or one of those wallets, a blue wallet, is trying to feed the hardware wallet to say, hey, Hey man, I know you've got this private key. Can you sign for this transaction? And only right. multi-sig. So this bug was yeah. multi-sig specific. Yes, yes. So in this example, it's a let's say you did, you did a two of three multi-signature setup. And so in this example, what you're what we're talking about here is cold card registering the other members of the quorum. So let's say you had a cold card and a, a Kobo and um, uh, what's like another hardware wallet. Like let's say you had a Spectre DIY and each of those hardware wallet devices has their own, I guess, uh, contribution into the, into, the, into the quorum, the set of multi-signature uh, devices. And that, the bug was essentially that cold card was not checking that its own, um, it was not a member of that quorum that it was setting up, correct? Yeah, so, so essentially we were just trusting a heuristic that was not good. There was essentially a bug there. Yeah. And then what's being fixed now is essentially that it does check that it is a member in that quorum. And also, I think when you're doing that multi-signature setup, um, it, you can sort of scroll through. And if you're just manually looking at, oh, okay, just kind of checking the first few letters and the last few letters of the three XPUBs in that example, that would have also given that user some level of protection there, correct? Yes, yes. It, it, again, right, it's one of those things It's like, you know, is this attack possible? Yes. Is this practical, realistic in any sort of time frame between being reported and being fixed? No, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, this is the kind of stuff that's like, you know, you 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 receive all these sort of like uh, uh, disclosures, you fix them, you release a fix. More often than not, you don't tip the bad guys, right? So you release a fix with a firmware quietly. Right, you so you you add that to a, a feature uh, uh, update. It depends on the case. On this one, it makes that sense, right? And then what you do is you wait for the disclosure period with this firmware out there, uh, and then and then on the day of the disclosure, you tell everybody to update. But that means that most people have already updated, so that you don't tell all the bad guys, "Hey, listen, there is this open bug out there." Gotcha. Okay, and so in terms of you know, going forward, I know there was a, a couple response blog posts. I know, for example, Hugo 
um, did uh, Hugo uh, of the Nunchuck Project did uh, a blog post, uh, and of course, uh, CoinKite had a blog post as well, uh, kind of just talking through some of the basics and what's going on here. But in terms of going forward, it sounds like one of the ideas is to create a multi-sig standard. So, do you want to outline a little bit about that? What is that? Yeah. So, so the the problem is inherent to to the current state of things, right? There was like we're sort of like going above and beyond here to try to to create some trust between the devices on the quorum, right, of the multisig. And because there is there is no secure way of doing that, we end up doing all these convoluted ways that just open yourself to more possible bugs, right, or possible exploits. So uh, Hugo had this this great idea of creating a standard for creating a quorum. Right, code card already does that. Well, did something like that between code cards. So if you're just using code card or code card for multi-sig, you're a lot more protected. But the the challenge here is when you have multiple vendors, right, creating a multi-sig between each other, right? Like we all have different ways in which we want to do things. Um, as as everybody who works in project knows, everybody thinks that their way is the best way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so this standard is is great because it's we're calling it BSMS, uh, Bitcoin Security Secure Multi-Sig Setup. So what it does is it creates just a little standard. It's it's actually quite small uh, for the the wallets to create a secure session with each other. So essentially, they have a handshake between each other at the time of, of creating the multi-sig wallet. And, and then once they have a secure session between them, a secure channel, let's put it this way, between them, um, they can then trade the secrets and important information, right? So they can trade the XPUB, they can trade all the other meta information of the, of the multi-sig, like the redeem script, right? And then there is no room for somebody else to get in there and try to lie about what setup was what. And so this would just be part of the new setup ritual, if you will, or setup ceremony. And essentially it could be conveyed the same way normal information is conveyed. So let's go back to that example. Let's say it's cold card plus a uh, Kobo vault plus a Spectre DIY hardware wallet doing a two of three. And so in the case of the cold card, you would still ferry or shuttle that information from say Spectre wallet into your cold card using the SD card. And then the other guys, you would do probably the QR code um, scanning and that's how you would, uh, they would ingest the info. So maybe for example, Spectre wallet would show a QR code and then the DIY and the Kobo vault would scan that and then read it. And then the user at that point can, I guess, check um, themselves and say, okay, yep. Does, does this quorum look right to me? Correct. Kind of, yeah. They, they would be essentially what all, all the standard is is uh, is creating a, a a secure channel between them. That's it. Gotcha. Right? gotcha. Uh, and then when you exchange the information, uh, which could be other standards, could be whatever. Uh, ideally, is descriptors. Uh, uh, then then that information, the the setting up information, cannot be fudged because it was sent safely between each other. I'm also thinking now as well, back to my conversation with Michael Flexman, where and also his uh, btcguide.github.io, where he talks about you know multi-sig. One of the points there is that you should theoretically, you know, depending on how secure you want to be, you should be checking your receive address anyway. So one way to do that, I guess, is to check that does this 
um, address belong to me. And in, for example, the cold card address explorer, you can do this. And on some of the other, um, like those hardware wallets with the screen and so on, you can go through and actually see, does this address belong to me? So yeah, that's another make way. Sure, make sure whichever hardware wallet you use can can show you on-screen deposit addresses, right? You need to be able to double-check on-screen that the address that you're receiving Bitcoin to is controlled by you. Yeah. Like, that's that's one of the most paramount things. Uh, um, and because there will be more attacks, right? There will be more vulnerabilities. And there probably are some out there, right, that we don't know about. So uh, the buck really stops with you. So like if you're just double, triple checking stuff, uh, you know, you're safe, right? Um, because again, like everything is hackable. Um, I, you know, I, but I can't repeat this enough, right? Like, all this stuff is very targeted, is very complex. Um, like most people in most circumstances are not exposed to a lot of these attacks and and the alternatives are less safe. Yeah, I think that's a very crucial point. I think it's one of those things where, you know, in the earlier days, there was less awareness about these things. And so we were just kind of running that risk without even knowing it, right? Especially for me, when I was a total newbie in the space and I was learning you know, like you're just using, you know, for example, things like Trezor Web Wallet, or you're just using, you know, Armory or something. And without knowing about all these kind of, oh, I need to verify the receive address. And I need to, you know, these things that you learn and you pick up over time. And you, you sometimes, hey, I'm, I'm pretty sure most, if you talk to anyone who's been around the Bitcoin space, they've got battle scars, right? They've lost coins on something. Yeah, it's crazy to think, right? That like, you know, we're talking about side channel attacks and things like that, while most people are copying a deposit address of an exchange from the browser, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With all the extensions <laughs> on. I mean, it's crazy to think, right? Um, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is like also fault of, of the market. Like, I, I think there is just like too much sort of like weaponized PR between competitors and things like that. I, I, I really think that like, it's a shame really that, that, uh, you're gonna depend your 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 sales on sort of like attacking like competitors on on like vulnerabilities, right? Because you're essentially just eroding the trust in these devices in general. Um, and and I maybe this is an ask for any security researcher listening. Um, I know that like a lot of the stuff you do is is incredible. Uh, and you want visibility when you find a bug or something, but you have to understand that like most people don't know the context of like what it takes to maybe achieve one of those attacks, or that is not sort of like everywhere all the time. And and then when you do responsibly disclose, um, I think the market has grown now enough. There is enough like so many players now and so many projects dependent on things that simply emailing um like one manufacturer who who did find the like i don't care how much you like or dislike right because this is not about the manufacturer this is about the users so i, I think it's a time now where like if you want to be a pro a security research you open a cve um and and you do the process the, the 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 traditional way of creating a responsible disclosure right because you know, you will probably affect other projects that are not necessarily uh, um, like a hardware wallet vendor, 
with your disclosure. Um, it, you know, it can affect a lot of things. And, and then and then you just essentially like leave users AOL. There are obviously a lot of rivalries in the space. And so often it's hardware wallet manufacturers uh, uh, slinging things at each other or it's security researchers. And I guess the, the bad case is when vulnerabilities just get openly, publicly disclosed out in the wild and then they basically force the hardware, they, if the hardware wallet manufacturer is blindsided, now they're scrambling and trying to quickly fix this and patch it and put out a fix and try to get their users upgraded so that they are now safe against this attack. While at the same time, it's like there's a funny incentive in some ways where some people who are disclosing a vulnerability might, let's say, overstate the feasibility of running that kind of attack because more press for them more publicity we kind of live in this crazy sort of attention economy so it, it you have to i guess it's a difficult thing and i can understand for a, a new person coming into this space that they don't know how to maybe assign Parse the it. right level of risk you know they don't have the right level of context to sort of understand okay is this kind of more like a edge case kind of crazy you know, freak scenario, or is this kind of like a really everyday thing? And like a lot of people will lose money because of this. And you have to try and assess that. Exactly. Right. And ultimately the person who, who the, the entity that chooses the severability of a vulnerability is the target vendor. The target vendor is, is like sort of like the ultimate source of truth there, even if they minimize it. Right. Uh, then they would just lose trust. But uh, I, I would always take with a bit of a grain of salt uh, the, the party who's disclosing it. I guess you take both parties with a grain of salt. But, but mind you, right, like when a bug or a problem is big enough that is a huge problem, like you will hear in the wild people already losing money to it or something, right? That That's very likely scenario. I, I just think that, like, we're now grown up enough. There's enough people using this stuff that, like, a, a lot of the security vulnerability disclosure, like, needs to be toned down a bit instead of, like, sort of, you know, like, oh, I'm going to put on the blog of my company because, like, you're not gaining that much anything, right, with that. Um and everybody's losing a bit with the erosion of trust on these devices. Um, I, I think that's very different than we all sort of like shitting on each other on Twitter. I mean, like, that's like fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you can say, oh, you know, I find your stuff to be crap or I find your stuff to not be that safe or whatever, right? I mean, so be it, right? Like, we're all human and we have our concerns or on a concern throw or whatever. But I think on the actual formal, sort of like disclosure and, and on the on the blog posts, like things need to be sort of like toned down a bit because they they do scare people. Uh and 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 reporters are completely like ignorant about like these issues and they will write the story uh also like hyperbolic with a hyperbolic sort of view just to get clicks too. Right. Um and we see this like everywhere all the time in this space. Yeah, it's a very tricky thing. So I can definitely appreciate for somebody who's new coming into the space and 
they're told don't trust verify but then okay then who do i what, what do i even what do i even do who do i look at what do I, and i need some guidance here and so that's a typical concern that i can imagine a, a new person to this space has and obviously i'm trying i'm doing my best to try and guide people into kind of safer pathways but i'm wondering do you have any tips around how you help guide newbies in the space um at, at, you know without kind of scaring them off so first is like look who actually like the people who are actually sources of of not source of truth but sources of some truth or at least a trusted point of view right if somebody claims to be a security researcher like where is the security research for you to review right like otherwise the person is a security pundit right so there's a big <laughs> difference there um you know people have opinions but are are they like producing something that like sort of creates uh, some rap on them, right? Like, do they have a, a trusted project? Are they involved in a similar industry or a similar part of the stack, right? For them to have an opinion, uh, you know, or maybe other people who are trusted in the community freaking out about the specific bug, not about the rhetoric around the bug, right? Uh, not like around sort of the drama around it, but like, are they actually concerned about the vulnerability, right? Are they saying like, you shouldn't use this device anymore or you should update immediately, right? What are they saying in that sense? But the best heuristic is when it is disclosed, right? Was it fixed, right? <laughs> so does, does do both parties, uh, sometimes they may not agree if it's a, like a vulnerability or, or a feature, right? That could have some, some, I'll, I'll give an example there later, but, um, does does the party who gives you the device most importantly first, right? Do they do they say that it was fixed? If it was fixed, it was fixed. Everything else is just drama, right? <laughs> um, yeah. If it was not fixed or it's not fixable, there are some major concerns with some devices out there. Um, you know, it's not fixable now. Is this something that you're okay with going forward, right? Like. You have to make a decision for yourself if you want to have a device that has a, say, a major flaw on it or not, right? Well, maybe that's fine for you, and so be it, right? Um, and then, and then, for example, there is things like you know, Cold Card has advanced features for developers, right? Uh, so we support testnet on the same uh, derivation path as uh, as your wallet. It is under a danger menu. Um, and it was brought in because somebody brought to our attention that there was sort of like a, a path to attack that. I'm like, great, but I don't want to remove that feature just because some people could be possibly maybe not even confused. They'd have to like be convinced to actively go into a menu and change something. So, you know, we took the device that could be a concern. So we just made it a little bit more like more scary to do that. Uh, but that that's not necessarily a bug or a vulnerability, that's just a choice in design, right? It's very different than sort of having a flaw on your chip that like you cannot secure it, right? Well, if you cannot secure it, you cannot secure it. There is no way to sort of spin that, right? Uh, so so yeah, so, so that's why it's, it's, it's important to, you know, first listen to your vendor uh, and, then, and then look to the community to see like if people are freaking out about updating it, replacing it, uh, outright trashing it. Uh, if nobody's freaking out and the vendor, you know, gave a satisfactory answer, but the the disclosure uh, is sort of like being a little bit hyperbolic, well, then you have your answer. 
that doesn't take away from the the great thing that happened, which is there was a flaw or there was a bug that was disclosed and something was fixed. That's a fantastic outcome. Yeah, very much so. Um, okay, so I guess one other thing that people might be thinking, okay, so many listeners of the show are themselves, uh, you know, they're an Uncle Jim to somebody else, they're teaching somebody else. What are some ways that you like to, uh, I guess, teach a newbie? Let's say uh, a person is a total newbie, they've got their coins on the exchange, and we are trying to teach them, hey, now's a good time to learn, you know, get a hardware wallet and learn how to take your coins off the exchange. Now, some of the difficulty for them might be, okay, I've got to, you know, maybe they might be worried about, oh, I've got to run a full node to do this. And how do you do that? Now, I guess for me, some of the ways that I've been going about this is I might tell them, okay, as an example, you can run a pruned node on your existing laptop or PC. So you don't even have to go and get a Raspberry Pi. You can just try it. Stepan Snijirov has that website, prunednode.today. That's one example. And then you can do that with Spectre. Or another way is maybe you can get the Raspberry Pi set up, right? You can do an Umbral or a MyNode or a Ronin Dojo or a Raspberry Blitz or a Noddle. Um, what are some of your tips when you are you know, out there or if you have you know, customers and they come to you and they're like a bit more newbie, how do they learn how to use a cold card? So I normally would send them to, uh, to Electrum just because for all its flaws, it is sort of like plug and play, right? You can just sort of like get running. There's privacy considerations in there. I'm very clear about that. Um, you know, if they want to, what's cool now is that uh, uh, Blue Wallet is now on desktop, right? So we send a lot of people to Blue Wallet. Uh, I asked uh, the Nunes and uh, the Blue Wallet team, they're looking into uh, adding USB support uh, to cold cards. So then as much as I prefer people use it air gapped, the our USB protocol is fairly like tight. Uh, and I think it's a good set of trade-offs for a new person starting, right? Because I want people to get used to holding their own money, right? I want them to get used to doing Bitcoin transactions. Once they build that confidence, it's going to be a lot easier and self-evident to them what next steps they should take, right? Um, so, and and I, you know, we we uh, we sponsor some and and uh, kiss uh, kiss B. So keep it simple, Bitcoin. He has a lot of amazing videos explaining every single step. Some of them are a little bit complicated. Some of them are great and simple. Uh, I think Matt Odell has like really good noob friendly, uh, I call them like whole banana uh, explanations of things where he'll take you from ordering the device to checking the device, to setting up the node, setting up the wallet and, and going through the whole shebang. Um, you know, uh, Citadel, uh, um, Liveris uh, uh, company <laughs> has like some really good uh, information on that too. Um, it's just like the wealth of knowledge is huge, right? Uh, and, and no single solution will be the best solution for everybody. Uh, I think people really need to, to learn to research because if you're just taking things at face value, uh, you have a lot more room to get screwed. Yeah, it's ultimately a personal responsibility culture. So while there are many of us in the space trying to make the education accessible to people, it sometimes, you know, you still have to you have to go and you have to find those people. So uh, we do what we do what we can. Yeah, it's it's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. There's a lot of people who sort of scream from the soapboxes, right? I'm an expert. I'm a security expert. You know what I mean? Like do the thing I told you to do. And 
they're not necessarily providing the 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 um the solutions that most people would sort of suggest yeah because ultimately it is always about trade-offs and again nothing nothing's perfect but ultimately i think those of us who are in the space trying to teach people it's ultimately about trying to give them a reasonable balance between usability and security and just while at the same time getting people to take that incremental step okay I'm I'm on the exchange. Okay, at least get off the exchange, even if it's imperfect. Just get off the exchange, and then okay, take the next step, next step, and so on. And I think that's kind of that's but that's been the exactly. approach that I've been taking when I'm out there teaching new new Bitcoiners. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, and part of it is I see it as like it's like choosing the right tool for the job, right? You have to try to understand what is their need, what is their use case, right? If they want a day to day spending wallet, well, then you probably want to get them on Lightning. But if they want a cold storage, which is most people. You got to get them on a hardware wallet, so it's just a uh, choosing the right tool. Yeah, and and then like and then people have different security considerations, right? Like some people live in dangerous people, dangerous places, right? Some people live in in uh, not so dangerous places. People have different amounts of money, right? Uh, some people don't have as many concerns about, say, using a, a multi-sig service like Casa Unchained, right? Because their coins are already doxed, like. People have different needs and, and we can't just like sort of bang this idea into the, into the, like, like scream this idea out to the world where it's like, everybody has to do this, right? No, there is no single solution, right? We just know that most people will be well served with a hardware wallet, right? But is that for everybody? No, right? Is, is multi-sig or as a service or, or, or a phone wallet good for, for other people? Yes. You know, it's it's. I think it's important to just give people sort of like all the options they have that are safe, uh, and explain the trade offs of each. Excellent. Well, look, I think we're coming up to the hour, so it's probably a good point to wrap up. So, if you've got any closing thoughts for the listeners, and of course, tell them where they can find you online. Yeah. Well, um, can't believe it's been an hour. Been talking, I think, today for eight hours on a Clubhouse about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, been spending a lot of time there uh, uh, answering questions with noobs. It's a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at NVK. Uh, you can find the stuff that we do at CoinKite.com. Uh, you can find uh, my security my my security preference for most people at Bitcoin Security Guide. Sorry, Bitcoin Security dot Guide. And uh, yeah, and you know. Don't don't get caught up in the in the in the drama in regards to your security. Fantastic. Thanks very much, NVK. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash two five two for this episode. Make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. That's it for me. I will see you in the citadels. Mm-hmm.